Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I am your host, Dr. Julieta Gabiola, clinical professor of medicine at Stanford University. What drew me to medicine was the science, the innovation, and the promise for a comfortable life. But what has kept me in medicine are the real people, their lives, and their stories, as well as the translation of medical innovations into practical applications. This podcast will explore experiences beyond the walls and corridors of the hospital, laboratories, and clinics. I invite you to share in our journey seeking to preserve and improve our lives, our sense of balance, and our well-being. Laying of the hand has always been a tradition and an expectation in an encounter between a patient and a provider. COVID-19 has forced us to go against that grain and rapidly transformed in person to virtual visits from 2% to almost 80 to 85% of all clinical encounters. What is the cost of this transformation? Will it be here to stay? And who will pay for these services eventually? How does this technology unveil the already existing inequity in health? How will we cope with this change? In this podcast, we will hear Dr. Topher Sharp share with us this rapidly evolving technology and how it could be used to our advantage. Good afternoon. Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I'm your host. I'm Julieta Gabiola. May I introduce you today to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Topher Sharp, who is the Chief Medical Information Officer at Stanford Healthcare. Topher wears multiple hats. He's an internist with clinical responsibilities in both the inpatient and the outpatient settings. He and his team drives information systems and innovations for providers and staff so we could take care of our patients better and effectively. He also is an outstanding mentor for Stanford Clinical Informatics Fellows and medical students. Please welcome Dr. Topher Sharp. Hi, Topher. Thank you so much for having me, Julieta. Hey, um, thank you so much for taking the time from your busy schedule to help us understand more about technology and telemedicine. So COVID-19 and its rapid spread and transmission has certainly fueled this almost overnight deployment of telemedicine at Stanford and other institutions nationwide. So we know that telemedicine had been around for more than 40 years, Topher, right? But since, yes. early, since early March, it has been an indescribable deployment on how quickly telemedicine had caught on such as the speedy, you know, with such a speedy traction. And I recall in a matter of days how training of providers uh, got accomplished in so little time and how many laptops and desktops you mobilized at Stanford. So take us to that moment in time in early March and how you and your team uh, did this, Topher. Well, thanks, Julieta. And uh, let me say that this has been such a transition for everyone um, I think that when we think about things like my kids' school, where we work, how we shop, you know, how we, how we interact, there have been so many changes that have been necessary in order to maintain safety, continuity, and the ways in which we, we interact as a society uh, under the constraints of COVID uh, that all of us have had to react to and, and change around. But when it comes to 
medical care, that's one of the most uh, kind of sacred interactions that we have. Um, Abraham Verges, who is one of our other esteemed colleagues at Stanford, is commonly says, you know, where else would you walk into a room with a total stranger, disrobe entirely, and tell them your, your most intimate secrets? Nowhere else but in medicine. And when COVID struck, the question was, how do you maintain that same level of caring, connection, and patient needs, meeting patients' needs, when we're all sheltering in place and when we can't, can't do the things that we normally would do? And also during a time when, you know, there was so much uncertainty and so much fear, especially early in the pandemic, we didn't really know how dangerous this was, how infectious this was, what we could even do about it, right? Would, would masks help or not? So many things were really unknown in the early pandemic. So accordingly, I think we, we all kind of looked and said, well, what is it that we can do that helps us to remain connected, helps us to retain that continuity of care that's so important uh, for our patients? And, and really, you know, for us at Stanford, that's what we're here to do. We're, we're here to, in service of our patients. And at that point, as you point out, you know, we have a capability, a technical capability to do video visits and other types of electronic outreach for some time, but we've never really kind of gotten it off the ground. And you have to ask why that was. And, and it turns out when we look back that there were a number of reasons we didn't quite get there. You know, it wasn't really mainstream. It wasn't really supported. Uh, there were legal issues. You know, can we do this? There were adoption issues. Many of our patients would say, oh, that's nice that you can do a video visit, but I'm more than happy to drive down and sit down and see you. And there were payment issues where payers said, it's fine if you do a video visit, but we're not going to reimburse or pay you for it. That's up to you. And all of those were really kind of barriers to getting to where we needed to get. But then COVID pretty much changed everything overnight. And all of a sudden, we had patients who were not ready to drive down and instead were ready to try an online visit. We had doctors who might even be older or have their own medical issues, who said, how can you be, how can you help me to stay connected with my patients, but still stay safe? Um, we had technologists who said, we're ready, we've got the technology, uh, and we, we really put that all together. And as you pointed out, you know, for us, that meant we needed to pivot overnight. And I'll, I'll just share two statistics about that. I, you know, during the pandemic, what we've seen were more than 180,000 unique patients have had their first online interaction with Stanford. And so if you think about patients who previously said, ah, I'm not so sure that's, if that's for me, 180,000 of them have now jumped on and said, in the pandemic, this is for me. I wanna, I wanna do this with you. And, uh, and we went from less than 2% of our clinic visits being video to more than 80% of our clinic visits being video at the peak and now we're re-equilibrating because we think as we go forward, some level of video really makes sense. Some level of in-person makes sense, and we've learned more about how to do it safely. But we've just seen such a strong pivot by everybody involved, patients, doctors, nurses, payers, uh, all, and, and technologists all the way across the board.
Wonderful, wonderful. I could remember like how it was very difficult for us uh, with the limitations of telemedicine visits on how we could actually appropriately gather information from the patients with really not the traditional laying of the hands and being able to examine the patient, right? And how we would also project compassion and caring through telemedicine. So walk us through and how you and your team actually trained us on how to do this. And even for us individual providers had managed to creatively examine the patients by doing all this gesturing in front of them through the computer and actually ask them, could you, you know, press this side of your belly or open your mouth or pry your eyes open uh, to do all this gathering of clinical information. So tell us how you started training all of us and the, the challenges of that and the traction that you got from us providers. Yeah, thanks, Juliet. I mean, this was, there was a lot to learn. Um, you know, for not only were patients experiencing this for the first time, but many doctors were really experiencing delivering care this way for the first time. And so a lot of us were learning very, very quickly and I'll give three quick examples. Uh, the first was we had to learn how to do it technically. Like, uh, I hate to say it, but one of the things I kept by my desk in, in, in my clinic was a piece of paper that would say, check your mute button. Because I would, I would be on the screen with my patient and I would see them, but I couldn't hear them. And I'd have to say, you know, check your microphone. And I'd, I'd hold up a piece of paper that said, please check your microphone because, because my patients would be struggling trying to convey to me. And, and so, you know, we had, we had a weird time where doctors were sometimes like technical support. And, and we had to learn how to do that as well as do the other things that, that make the visit right. So, so first of all, we all had to figure out a lot about the tech, you know, to learn the tech. That was, that was a new experience. Um, the second, as you point out, is, you know, we couldn't lay hands in the same way. So we had to learn new techniques, you know, um, telling a person, open your mouth, say, ah, and lean into the camera felt really different than the way we would do it in, in the clinic, right? And, but there were ways to learn how to do that. And, and our colleagues really rose up and found the right ways to do that. Then they created little learning videos that we quickly circulated to all of our doctors so we could watch some of the best practices and learn, oh, you can instruct a patient on how to help you do the exam. You know, if a, if a person has back pain, you can ask them to set down their camera, back up, stand up, bend forward. Can you bend to the side? Can I watch you walk? You can really learn a lot about how severe or how significant their problem is, you know, through these very simple techniques. Uh, so that was really a big learning. And the third thing we learned was that, you know, creating that sense of connection and compassion on a video screen is not the same. And the, the example I'll give to this was, you know, we had to train people, look at the camera, because when you do, the patient feels you are looking at them. Like, it sounds dumb, but we'd be looking down at our shoes or looking at our notes or looking at something else. And, you know, if you're a patient, you would say, what are they doing over there while they're talking to me? Are they paying attention to me? And so we, we just had to learn a lot about how to you know, make new connections uh, through this new modality. 
Yeah, yeah, it's just such a wonderful experience to uh, see individual, uh, like individual practitioners and how to they deal with this, right? But it's such a pleasant experience also to see on the computer the background uh, information that we get, like who are the patients living with and what is their bathroom looks like and the pictures on the walls and their kitchen and and stuff like that. So it is really just wonderful. It's like it brings me to their home. It's like making a home visit. It's really true. Uh, And I think some of our doctors have said, you know, long ago, I remember going to patients' homes. Now I feel like I'm doing that again. That really brings me some joy in the midst of other things that I have to learn that might be a little more challenging for me. But, But that's a really cool aspect. And it really is true. I know for me, I've seen my patients with their children. I've seen my patients with their spouses. Uh, you know, I've seen their, my patients in their environment. I've had patients hold up their pill bottle and put it right in front of the camera so that I can make sure we're talking about the same medicine as we're communicating about how to make an adjustment. And that's a, that's a real positive. So, you know, for us, as you point out, there was just a lot of rapid learning. We had to, we had to start to learn ourselves uh, how, to make this really, how to make this really right and, and how to make uh, care delivery happen in that way. And I'd point out one more thing about that, that, you know, as we go forward, this won't go away. You know, it, it, all the signs would say that we're going to continue to want to connect with people in the right ways. And it turns out that video sometimes really is the right way, pandemic or not. You know, there, there are people, you know, I have patients for whom it is very difficult for them to get to my office. And, and whether that is because it's difficult, because it's physically difficult for them to get here, or I have some patients for whom it's four bus rides and, you know, half of the money that they had for the week to be able to get here. And that's not, that's not okay either. There are really ways that we can use this to bring ourselves into the home, help meet people where they're at. And when it's right to do, that's really something that's a big advantage. I'm glad that you brought that offer, you know, because it really decreases the time for their transportation, uh, parking, and you have to pay for, for parking or they can't find parking at Stanford. So, um, and that, and then even for busy professionals, they don't have to take that time away from the office, right? So, but then my concern is people who do not have the resources for this type of technology, you know, and or who cannot be trained to do this uh, remotely. So how, how do we set the stage to be able to cope with that, uh, that particular group of patients with no internet access or they can't learn the technology or, or whatever? Julia, that's such an important question. And um, I think about this a lot because COVID has really unearthed some of the inequities that we have in healthcare and in our society in general, as we know. Uh, We know that some populations are so much more affected than others, and that's not just a clinical problem. It's a social problem uh, where, you know, even in our community, we have some members for whom sheltering in place is, is not hard. They can work from home. They can live at home. They have the resources. They have the means. They have a large home for a small number of people. And then we know we have other populations which are completely the opposite. They are essential workers who must go out into the workplace. They are multi-generational families living in a small home where they're all you know, going to be uh, at an increased risk to expose or con- uh, convey uh, the virus to each other. And the same thing plays out in digital, as you point out, which is sometimes there's an advantage 
because a patient might be able to get online and have a visit with us in a way that otherwise would be very difficult for them to do in order to, for instance, leave behind their children when they don't have another option for childcare. That's a real wonderful advantage, but there are also discrepancies that go the other way. When individuals don't have broadband access, they don't have internet access, they may not have a smartphone. These are some of the things that are really important in order to be able to do this online type of, of interaction that we know is so important. So when we think about that, you know, there, there are things that we can do as uh, healthcare providers to be aware of that, to be planful around that. Sometimes we do telephonic visits and not a video visit because that's really what the patient can, you know, can actually do with us. But there are also opportunities for us to advocate uh, as well. And I think about things like there are some bills that will be coming up to try to assure that broadband access is more, uh, you know, broadly available or to help families that cannot access that to be able to gain access through subsidies or other entities. And I, I think that from a healthcare perspective, I'd say right on, that is really the right thing to do and, and, and really important for us all to be thinking about for those people that are not as uh, well off or not as well connected uh, as others. Oh, that's nice for you to share and uh, looking at the inequities that we have. And I think as physicians, we are ill-prepared to face both the, the clinical translation of technology and also the impact of it in a social setting. But before we leave telemedicine, moving forward, as what you mentioned, that the pandemic is unfortunately here to stay. In order to coexist with it, uh, with our current technology, do you have something in the pipeline in terms of how we should evolve and better improve this technology to better take care of our patients? Are there federal mandates or guidelines in terms of like what services will be covered and who will pay for these services in the future? You know, whether it's COVID related or non-COVID related, I think patients are concerned who pays for the services, right? Yeah, that's important, Julieta. I mean, if we think about healthcare disparity, a lot of that comes down to economics. So it's really important to know how we're going to make this work as we go forward. First, I guess I'd say that COVID has been an extraordinary learning opportunity for us as a country, right? We've started to learn that there are other ways we can deliver healthcare, but there's still a lot of un unanswered questions. Like, when we do it this way, is it at the same quality as it would have been if we had met in person? When we do it this the way, are we creating a cheaper way of delivering healthcare or are we creating a more expensive way of, of delivering healthcare? There's really some open questions, I think, that, that we'll all have to wrestle through. But it's pretty clear that we have opened up an opportunity in a channel that we've never had before. Part of that comes from relief that's happened during the course of the COVID pandemic, where, for instance, Medicare stepped forward and said, we're going to pay for this just like we would if you were to come in and see a, a doctor in person, because we know you can't. So we're going to make this, we're going to make this a one for one and, uh, and make this right. And other payers, other insurance uh, entities have all come forward and said the same. As we start to emerge into the new normal, there's been a lot of good push to retain that and to make that still available uh, for patients and for their doctors to be able to engage them. That's happening at a national level, happening at a state level, but there are some really important pieces around that that will uh, be important that our Congress people have to really wrestle through and, and try to make right as we go forward. Right now, I guess what I'd say around this is that 
there's not really an end in sight for COVID. It's going to take a while to work through this. And everything that I have seen says that uh, our country and our payers are committed to supporting us through that time, be able to continue to use virtual interaction. And I'll go one step further and say there are a few other things that are going to be pretty interesting that are coming down the pipeline, too. And these are things like, well, how could we maybe monitor you in your home to know that you're okay? You know, if you have COVID, could we monitor and follow how you're doing? Maybe your oxygen levels, your blood pressure, the other things that could help us know. Uh, and how can we how can we pay for that, too? Because that might help you stay out of the hospital. And hospitals and emergency departments are very expensive places for everybody. So there, we've, I think we're all seeing there's really new opportunity here, not only to take care of people in the right way, but also to drive down that total cost of care that all of us uh, as individuals and as a nation are pretty worried about. And so I feel very optimistic about the opportunities for us to learn through COVID and really uh, advance in the right way. Good to know. Good to know. Thank you for sharing that, uh, Topher. Now, I recall, remember in 2006, when we deployed our first electronic medical uh, system, electronic medical records. So we deployed it right around 2006 when you were one of the pioneers who who held our hands and, you know, shepherded us towards this new innovation. And then remember how it was so difficult to change the way we practice from the chart model or paper model to all computerized system and the challenges with that. How could you parallel that experience Experience with now the telemedicine and other new technology coming up here in terms of innovations in medicine? Well, I guess I'd say um, it's a great point that medicine doesn't sit still. Things are constantly changing in medicine. And whether we're a patient, a doctor, or anybody else uh, in, involved in medicine, I think the rate of change is something that you have to acknowledge. It's really remarkable how much things are changing. And you know this as well, Julieta, that you know, what we learned in medical school when we were in training, probably less than 50% of that is still true because it's constantly changing so, so quickly what we, what we know and what we know is right to do. I think that, uh, as you point out, there is you know, big changes that technology brings as well to medicine, and, and this is just a part of that continuum. None of us who are in medicine came into it because we thought we knew it all and we were, just, we were going to be good just with that. You know, we all came into it because we wanted to be continual learners. This is another opportunity, I think, for us to continually learn what it means, how it works, when it's really useful and when it's not, you know, when it's right and when it's not, and sort of what are some of the great things and what are some of the challenges with it. You know, virtual care won't be all things. I, I heard a, a recent uh, anecdote that I'd love to share from, from one of my colleagues. He said, you know, the sicker you are, the more human you want the interaction to be. If you're just a little tiny bit sick, ah, whatever, I'll just go online and figure it out. I'll be happy. Or maybe I'll just see my doctor or maybe I'll see any doctor. I don't care. Just somebody who helps me figure it out. But if I'm really sick, I want that one trusted doctor. I want to be as close as possible to that person, physically, emotionally, mentally, in my concept of my understanding. I want to be really, really close. And I thought that was really fascinating to think that you know, all of us are getting more comfortable, you know, working through virtual when it really is convenient and it really is 
you know, kind of right-sized to our needs. But, you know, when the going gets tough, we all need to figure out how we get really, really close up personal and, and just make sure we're really very, very connected. And I, I think that's something that we're all going to have to work on still learning uh, when it comes to this. Oh, thank you, Topher, for contributing to the exploration of humanity and humanism in medicine. How are you doing in terms of your home home front and all these changes that we are facing? I'm sure your kids going to school and that changed as well. So the dynamics at your home have also changed. How are you doing with that? Well, I mean, I I think I have a lot of empathy for others. Uh, I... You know, I have three children at home. They none of them have been able to go to their schools. They're they're in uh, high school, middle school, and elementary school. Each of them have you know been figuring out what it means, how it works. And my wife and I both work. So there are days when and and we're both physicians. There are days when we have to be at the hospital. Uh, so we've had days when you know my 15 year old is helping my 10 year old make sure that he's on his Zoom on time. And that's a that's a weird feeling, you know, to have have that be so different than our prior experience. But I would say that, um, you know, like like many families, we're all adopting and adapting, trying to figure out how to how to make this right. You know, I've found that, uh, you know, there are times when I have to tell my kids, you have to go outside, even if you can't be with other kids, you have to go outside now because you've been on the screen too long today. So I think that, you know, for each of us. There are lots of ways that we've had to adjust. I personally feel blessed that I've been able to continue working, that I've been able to see my kids continue their schooling and their training. I've been able to see, you know, in some ways more of my family because commutes are less and some of the other requirements are less. But I also think that we all feel a sense of um, loneliness and a little bit of uh, disconnection that we miss uh, so much about our, our friends and our family that we can't see in ways that we did before. So, I, you know, I, I kind of feel like my, my heart goes out to everybody else who uh, I think also are, you know, in our homes or in our places where we're, we're trying to make it, uh, make do and make it right. Thank you so much, Topher. Final message to our listeners? Uh, final message? Uh, boy, I guess I'd say um, we're all in this together. And, uh, you know, I think that um, technology has made this pandemic very different than I would imagine it might have been if it happened 10, 20, or 50 years ago. So where we can help, where we can have technology help us to remain more human and more connected, uh, even in the setting of a pandemic, you know, let's do it. Let's, let's do it together. I think uh, for, from a perspective as a physician and just a perspective as a member of our community, I, I think we all need to figure out the very best we can do uh, during this time. And I you know, I, I thank you, Julietta, for creating another way to help us stay connected and help us all uh, learn from each other and hope, hopefully uh, help us be better for it. Thank you so much. And I am also learning this myself. You know, never too late to learn, right? Every day is a learning experience. Thank you so much, Topher. And uh, I really appreciate your time that you had dedicated to today's podcast. And have a wonderful afternoon and uh, best wishes to your family. Thank you so much, Julia. And the same to you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to Medicine for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with family and friends. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Acast, and YouTube. 
follow me on social media at Dr. Jet on Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. See you on our next episode.